This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Disorderly Conduct, Best of Left Activism, and a speech from TEDx. And no, I'm not saying that all rich people are actually assholes, but as we will learn today, it does appear safer to assume them assholes until proven otherwise. It's just science. Before this week, you've probably never heard of a guy named Tom Perkins. But he's a pretty interesting dude, multi-millionaire venture capitalist, formerly married to famed novelist Daniel Steele, and in 1996 was convicted in France of involuntary manslaughter for a yacht accident that killed a man. Tom Perkins' star has risen this week because, as a multi-millionaire, he wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal in which he compared the rising populist sentiment against the rich in America to Kristallnacht in Nazi Germany. Quote, I would call attention to the parallels of fascist Nazi Germany to San Francisco's war on its 1%. Kristallnacht was unthinkable in 1930. Is its descendant progressive radicalism unthinkable now? And then, in a pretty incredible follow-up interview, Perkins appeared on Bloomberg TV to apologize, kind of. Do you regret this comparison? Um, yes. I, I talked to the head of the... Uh, uh, Anti-Defamation League, uh, Abe uh, Foxman, this morning, following up on a letter I had sent over the weekend, apologizing for the use of the word Kristallnacht. Uh, it was a, a terrible word to have chosen. More than 90 Jews were killed in Kristallnacht, 30,000 people put in concentration camps. Right. What were you going for? I... Analogy. I... The, the Jews were only 1% of the German population. I guess my point was that when you start to use hatred against a minority, it can get out of control. Let the rich do what the rich do, which is get richer, but along the way, they bring everybody else with them. They could buy a six-pack of Rolexes for this, but so what? I've created some billionaires, but I unfortunately am not one. Are you divorced from reality? I, I don't know if anybody can answer that uh, <laughs> truthfully. I don't think so. And it all might have ended there. Multi-millionaire plutocrat says something ridiculous, sort of apologizes, goes back to being a plutocrat. End of story. Except then, amazingly, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, the official organ of movement conservatism in this country, came to Perkins' defense, quote, while claiming to be outraged at the Nazi reference, the critics seem more incensed, and Mr. Perkins dared to question the politics of economic class warfare. Maybe the critics are afraid that Mr. Perkins is onto something about the left's political method. The point was essentially, okay, maybe Kristallnacht was a little over the top, but basically Tom Perkins was right. And crucially, this is not an isolated view. Remember in 2010 when Jonathan Alter reported this little tidbit from billionaire Stephen Schwartzman, quote, it's a war, Schwartzman said of the struggle with the Obama administration over increasing taxes on private equity firms. It's like when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939. And don't forget this gem from Grover Norquist's appearance on Fresh Air with Terry Gross back in 2003. Excuse me one second. Did you just yeah. compare the estate tax with the Holocaust? No. The morality that says it's okay to do something to a group because they're a small uh, percentage of the population is the morality that says that, that the Holocaust is okay. I wrote an entire book about the psychology and the psychopathologies of the American elite. And if there's one thing I've taken away, it is that there is nothing more destructive than a ruling class that simultaneously has too much power and is genuinely convinced it's being persecuted. And that is the situation we have now. And history has shown 
That is a very unstable equilibrium indeed. Peace in Huffington Post. And, and, and we're talking now as what is going on with the wealthy billionaires who are convinced that the notion of income inequality in this country is a sign of a potential rise in the fervor that brought Adolf Hitler to power. And Dacher Keltner, actually sounds like he may be German, a psychology professor at the University of California, uh, has done research on what large amounts of money, what that impact has on people who have just on uh, un- ungodly, and I do mean ungodly, amount of money. He says, extreme wealth in our lab makes people less compassionate. They care less about the suffering of others. They're less empathetic. They tend to think they, are, they have their tons of money because they have a stronger genetic profile. So maybe when they start talking about Hitler and Nazism, it's just a projection. I say that sounds a little bit creepily something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he says you put that together and you get jackasses. <laughs> Interesting use of the term jack as in jackbooted thugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello. Studies by Keltner and others have shown that rich people are less likely to share money with a partner or feel empathy for starving children. They are more likely to take candy from a baby. (laughs) Being rich rewires your brain and your environment in such a way that it's easy to feel entitled to your money and harder to understand why other people don't have it, Keltner said. Billionaires' extreme wealth allow them to be psychologically insulated from the realities of being poor. Keltner said they couldn't even imagine what it would be like to earn thirty-five thousand and worry about paying things like uh, paying things like paying bills or taking a long ride on public transportation. Apparently, another billionaire this uh, this past month, Wilbur Ross said that rising from the ghetto to his position making billions is as easy as getting some education. Ross grew up in a suburban uh, New Jersey home, son of a lawyer and a school teacher. With a little bit of hard work and a little bit of education, you can move from Scarsdale to uh, another part of Scarsdale. Uh, Keltner says that rich people believe more in the genetic basis of class categories. If you walk around with that belief and someone says, well, gosh, what do you think about poor people? In your mind, you're thinking, 
that's kind of where they belong. There's no opportunity for change, and they're a menace to society. And one thing, uh, one of the things we're learning is that really wealthy, powerful people, this is, goes to the question as to why these billionaires keep making these offensive and just downright stupid comparisons to uh, populism, any nascent populist movement in this country being uh, leading directly uh, to Nazi Germany. One of the things that we're learning is that really wealthy, powerful people make their underlings less challenging so no one is standing up to that guy. You don't get the challenges that keep you honest. That's a really... Shut up, Michael! Just shut up. I don't want to hear it. You too, Matt. Silence from the rest of the show from you guys. That's a really good no point. No more. Thanks, boy. Talking. God. But what if you? What do you guys think of my sweater today? Nice. It looks though, right? amazing. Thank you. All right. <laughs> it's the same. Uh, you know, in like medieval history, there was the uh, the idea of the great chain of being. It was like the in. The political manifestation of like religious ideas, basically, but like that the the king was on top, yes, and then you fall. I mean, that's just, it's just a post. It's just divine, a modern version uh, of the divine divine. right. Yes, yeah, divine it's just right. a great chain of being. Absolutely. That's it, absolutely. And you can throw in all the justification. I mean, the real thing. I read a piece in the New Yorker once about why, um, why these guys were so upset by Obama, like why they were having a tantrum about Obama because Obama has been unbelievably easy on them. And two things that she said in the article was one was that they can't deal with even the fact that Obama would say in an interview like a college student should do something besides just think about making as much money as they could possibly make. Like that level of criticism was too offensive for them. And two, she was talking with this one guy, one billionaire, who had a friend who's a retired surgeon worth a couple million dollars. And he's just like, I just don't know how he's going to do it. Like that's his perspective yeah. of financial difficulty. Yes, is a is a highly upper middle class guy. Yes, and that's how narrow it is. Like he's only got one vacation home in Florida. Yes, I mean it's it's totally delusional. It's so totally dangerous delusional. to have people have this much influence who not only are not only. I mean they might not even all necessarily be bad people. They're they're just they're they're delusional. That's the only word. Right, they're out of touch. I mean you know there was. When I've talked about this, there was a uh, years ago now, maybe I don't know, fifteen, twenty years ago, there was a piece. I think it was in the New Yorker about acquired narcissism, and by uh, celebrities, and which I think is actually a real phenomena. I mean, I I have friends who are famous. You go into <clears throat> restaurants. I mean, some you walk on the streets of the city. Um, they, they, you know, <clears throat> they can't take the subway. They, they, you, they walk into a, a restaurant. Literally, they change the physics of that room. The vast majority of people turn their heads, look, acknowledge that they know that person. Maybe they say to the person they're eating with, "There's so and so," and that's got to impact you. If you're living in a world where you are simply going from the helicopter to the limo to the and dealing only with people who, who run in those circles, you, you you are completely out of touch. And really, you you should hire someone to simply say like, "We're going to sequester you, boss, uh, for your own good." Your shoes look awful. 
But that was that was when uh, you're fired. <laughs> but that was another thing Daniel Goldman said when I interviewed him. When we interviewed him. He also said the other part of it is that you don't have you're outsourced, like you're saying, not even in those extreme examples, but just from any sort of basic interaction. You never need to ask your neighbor for a favor. You never need to like have. There's no need for any type of social connection and accountability in a certain way because you can just outsource everything. Just take your little troubles and share them with the folks next door. Makes it twice as easy to bear them. That's what friends are for. Cause if you're Sam Polk made $5 million in bonuses alone when he was working on Wall Street. But he decided to leave his, his job as a trader at the age of 30 because he realized that he had developed a severe addiction to money and he hated the culture that existed in Wall Street. So uh, he wrote this piece in the New York Times and he was extremely candid and honest about his experiences. He talked about how, you know, uh, government officials were like buddies and they were treated like royalty. The members of Wall Street were treated like royalty by the politicians, and he also wrote the following. One of the things I came to realize was I had been using money as this thing that would quell all my fears. So I had this belief that maybe someday I would get enough money that I would no longer be scared. I would feel successful. And one of the things I learned on Wall Street was no matter how much money I made, the money was never going to do it. Yeah. Uh it's it's so true. I mean, it's never enough. There's no end to greed. And I read uh, his article when he first wrote it, and I thought it was really powerful. And how it and it first introduced the idea to me that money could be an addiction. Of course. I, I, no, I don't know why I didn't think of that before. Yeah. And uh, and the way that they act in the same way that addicts act, they got to get more. They got to they got to get their fix, and they can't let anybody else have more than them. And un unless you're removed from that bubble. You can't get out of that treadmill. It was it was a really powerful statement. So he kind of uh, talked about how he would, you know, he was making millions of dollars at the age of 25, which is crazy. But he would sit next to billionaires on a regular basis, and it was this competition between him and billionaires. And you felt like you had to participate in that competition to get the validation you needed, right? So it was a validation thing, it was an ego thing, it was an addiction thing, and it's really fascinating to see how that culture works, because oftentimes when we have these debates about taxes and corporate tax loopholes and everything, we always wonder why it is that the most wealthy people in the country, including the Koch brothers, just can't get enough, right? They're destroying the country in the process of trying to cut their taxes as much as possible, but they don't care. They want more. Uh, the quote I love most is this one, because uh, it explains that yeah. uh, to a large degree. He says, I was in a meeting with one of them and, and a few other traders, referring to a, a really rich um, uh, hedge fund uh, guy, and he said, and they were talking about the new hedge fund regulations. Most everyone on Wall Street thought they were a bad idea. But isn't it better for, uh, for the system as a whole, I asked. The room went quiet, 
and my boss shot, shot me a withering look. I remember his saying, I don't have the brain capacity to think about the system as a whole. All I'm concerned with is how this affects our company. I felt as I'd been punched in the gut. He was afraid of losing money, despite all that he had. So I, I took something else away from that quote. Yes, he's afraid of losing money, he's addicted to the money. But think about how short-term they think. Mm-hmm. Like the system as a whole and the whole thing collapses. Maybe yes, maybe no, I don't care. And by the way, these are supposed to be the masters of the universe and really brain, you know, really brainy and smart and stuff. He's like, I don't have the brain capacity to yeah. think about the system as a whole. Yeah. But boy, then you need to get a new job, yes. right? Uh, but he doesn't care, he just thinks, right. how much am I gonna make at the end of this year? That's all I care about. Now if you have those kind of short-term incentives, yeah, of course you're going to do damage in the long term. You don't give a damn about the long term, let alone to anyone else. I mean, he doesn't even care that much about his company in the long term, let alone the whole economy. So when you have this kind of thinking, that's why Wall Street is set to blow. Absolutely. And I like the fact that he came out and he wrote this. I like the fact that he was self-aware enough to leave that kind of culture. But at the same time, I mean, I think this is something that everyone kind of suspected. You just needed someone that was part of that culture to come out and, and be really, really honest about it. So now he's working for this nonprofit organization. Um, and he, he says that he's more fulfilled doing that. So it's really great that he's doing it. But People like him are very rare. I mean, once you get a taste of that lifestyle and that kind of money, like you're hooked for life. Yeah, people like him, uh, ironically, are worth their weight in gold. The thing is, um, I was making a joke. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, they, they've done studies. Thank you, for that. Thank, you. Thank you very much. I have to. So, you know, when you have to point out it's a joke, it's a great one. Uh, so <laughs> they've done studies, right? Uh, that one too, right? Yeah. So when they've done studies, you fucking. <laughs> so they've done studies. <laughs> And uh, so uh, about what happiness is. So we're taught at yes. a young age, work hard, achieve a thing. When you achieve the thing, you'll feel happy. But it, that is never how it, it turns out. That's, that isn't how it happens. You're on to the right. next thing. And I've learned that in my own life, right? So I've, uh, I've achieved all the goals I'd set for myself. Turns out I didn't set enough. And what every you, time Barack I... Barack Obama? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding, right? right? And the thing is, after I you know, succeeded in accomplishing what I thought was my life goal, I didn't feel any more accomplished really. I was, my mind was on the next thing and it never stops. And so now they're trying to do this thing. I saw this guy uh, give a TED talk about this from Harvard and they're trying to teach people how to use, you know, that whole thing about happiness isn't a goal, it's a way. And you try to do things and they have, they have actual strategies now that can teach you how to be more optimistic. They have ways that can train the way you, you think differently now so you can appreciate things more. So if they have exercise where you write down uh, things that you are appreciative of every day, 20 new things, and after a month, it's changed the way you see the world, literally, and you're now happier. So that's what this guy's saying. He's like, hey, I had everything that they say is supposed to bring happiness. And it didn't. And it doesn't to these guys either, by the way. That's why they're still out there ah, trying to get more and more and more because they're still empty inside. And that's part of why that Tom Perkins guy talked about the war on the rich and, yeah. the, and the crystal knocked and all that. Because even if you have 3.6 million, as this guy did in one bonus alone, he thinks, well, I didn't get enough. I should have gotten 8 million. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy next to me has so much more than me. And then so he already feels like a victim. And so when progressives come and say, hey, you guys have rigged the yes. rules and you have more mm-hmm. uh, than you're supposed to, it, it, if you hadn't rigged the rules, like, oh my, then they feel doubly victimized. Because yes. in this context, they don't understand how much they have 
vis-a-vis the rest of the world, right? Yes. They just know that they're making less than the guys sitting next to yes. them. Yes. And so they that's another reason why they feel like victims. Yeah. And I, I love what you said, Jimmy, about how happiness has been taken and it's been twisted by American culture, right? right. Where happiness always has to do with money, your financial success, your career success. What you said was so beautiful because you should focus on the things that money can't buy. Your mm. health, your family, love. Like you, you can't get that from money. And I think that people that work in that world forget that. You know what I mean? They, they focus too much and they prioritize too much on their financial well-being when they should be focusing on other things that actually genuinely make you happy. Jimmy? You are a beautiful person. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful person. Uh, so now, let me let me add one quick thing about this. Um, look, uh, I, I that's the one thing that I emphasize most: appreciation, right? But it's a tough thing. And I remember in college uh, they had me write a, uh, in a a paper in a business class, in a management class, about this guy who was incredibly successful but was never satisfied, and he wanted more, and it had all these details. And so they say, why is he not satisfied, right? And it's a business paper. I don't know why he. It was a weird question, mm-hmm. right? So I'm like, I don't know what they were asking, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer it. In the, I'm gonna give them the real answer because even back then, <laughs> that's what I did, right? Mm-hmm. And it's no matter if it affected my grade or not. I wrote this article about how that's the paradox of the successful man. What drives him to be successful is that he's never satisfied. But since that's what's in him, his success is irrelevant because he's never satisfied. Right? Yes. And the grade came back C. And TA said, hey, Socrates, it's a management paper, not a philosophy paper. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. So I wanted to start off by talking about this horrifying story that came out of Fort Worth, Texas, where this rich 16-year-old kid got drunk and um, was speeding in his uh, pickup truck and mowed down a family of four. Did he kill the whole family? He killed them all. And uh, and so he was sentenced uh, this last Tuesday to um, 10 years of probation after he confessed to this. Uh, so he basically got off. And the defense that got him off was that he <laughs> what, he had affluenza. Not influenza, but affluenza. Affluenza. Affluenza, which is the condition of growing up rich and so being insulated from um, understanding that your actions have consequences. So that's literally a, what a they said verdict. to the judge. This yes. is like a real story. They, this is not an onion no, article. this is an actual story. They said to the judge, he's too rich to understand. He's been coddled his whole life, and he doesn't understand consequences and the judge was like yeah that sounds right okay probation 
Wow. It, which is like totally startling. And yet, I, I want to point to a few things that I think are good about this verdict. The first thing is that it's such a perfect distillation of the liberty and justice for some model where like the, the judge is being asked to like take pity on the rich. <laughs> They're like, the rich can't understand. And so like, please take pity. And the judge is like, all right. So it's just, it, in that way, it's just such a perfect illustration of like, look, there's, there are, I don't need to tell you, a lot of 16-year-olds who do things a lot wor like better than <laughs> driving drunk, like just smoking a joint or whatever, who wind up in prison for a long yeah. time for it. Uh, or not even smoking a joint, just like having a little bit of pot exactly. in their pocket that, you know, maybe they, whatever. So ju just the like perfection of the, uh, the starkness of the, the double standard here is just so uh, kind of useful. But more, more to the point, I think that it's like I, I kind of buy it in affluenza. Like I kind of believe that if you grow up coddled, you don't understand the consequences of your actions. And if the purpose of the court is to hold people responsible for the actions that they made in sound mind and body, well, then that seems like perfectly legitimate grounds to discuss. And so, like, I think that really the, the message from that that we should take or, like, the, the precedent that it sets is kind of hopeful is taking social and material factors into consideration when rendering judgments about, like, an individual's decisions, right? Like, So you're saying that this could be used not to just rich assholes, but if, also If it were applied people. evenly. Like, I, I apply it evenly. Like, I, I really do think that, like, um, you know, responsibility is social for stuff that goes on and being poor um, can influence you to make decisions being rich can influence you to make decisions the context of your life the, the, the like social factors that are impacting you those should be taken into account when like rendering judgments about your decisions and it can't just be like holding individuals responsible for stuff so in, in one way like I think um, if if we can take from it that like people that like social and material factors have to be taken into consideration then that's it's a really useful thing this this reminds me if if this were to be applied in a fair way what what I feel like we could see is I, I read this really interesting review in the New York Review of Books about this book that was called um, Scarcity Why Having Too Little Means So Much and basically the idea is that poverty totally captures your mind and when all you're doing is thinking about where you're going to you know eat next and what you're going to do next you are really bad at making long-term decisions which makes you know some sense but this is a book that kind of outlines like the science behind that and so there is actual like evidence that that impoverished affects your decision making and so it stands to reason that this could be a really good thing I guess my question for you is it seems like we have a two-tier justice system for a reason yes. right it, it favors the wealthy for a reason Absolutely. what makes you I guess more hopeful that that it might actually be applied not just to I affluenza but I don't know that it, that it might but to also impoverabetes or whatever uh, <laughs> I think I, you just coined a new term <laughs> that's pretty good impoverabetes uh, <laughs> um, it, I'm not actually very hopeful about that but what I will say is that um, the there, one other hopeful thing to take away from this is that if if um, too much money is actually like a public safety hazard, like if having too much money actually creates like traffic problems for other people and makes people not be safe to walk down the street, then the obvious solution is to <laughs> confiscate some of their money, relieve them of some of that horrible burden that makes criminals of them, don't you think? Well, is there a way that we could think about that in terms of, like I think, of, of unfortunately, everything in terms of financial regulations, because that's where my head is stuck all the time, but like there's this emphasis that the Fed has on the safety and soundness of the banking system. Mm -hmm. 
and they make all these really bad decisions and bad regulatory choices because they're trying to preserve the safety and soundness. It seems like there should be something like that for non-financial regulations, right? The safety right? and like, soundness of, like, normal human interactions. Yeah, that we're not going to get mowed down by some <laughs> rich asshole who has no compassion for anyone else and no sense that their actions have consequences. If that guy is more liable to do it because he's rich, then the solution is making him less rich. <laughs> it just seems so obvious. Um, I will also note, just in closing about this, because we shouldn't spend too much time on it because we have Volker, Volker rule to discuss. Wow, world juror, that one. Um, it really is. And... Uh, but I, I just want to say that, like, as a prison abolitionist, I'm glad the kid's not going to prison. Like, prison sucks. And basically, I think that this may be, because, despite the fact that it's so fucked up and such, like, a, a horrible uh, example of the two-tiered justice system, it, it basically should be the model for trying teens, right? Where, like, teens are stupid and do hella dumb shit and sometimes it's extremely horrible what happens as a result and that has to be made known to them and they have to change their lives and, and get it together and they shouldn't be put in prison because being put in prison doesn't help them do that and they shouldn't be you know like the 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 various and sundry things that influence teens should be partly held to account for like why things bad shit happens when teens get out of control but I think you do need to take but into account but it just has to be also applied to black and Latin kids well, as well right and you also need to take into account the people that were killed right so I don't think I think it's a, a step that he's not just being thrown in in prison for however many you know gears but like you know what what a, when prison reform advocates talk about stuff they talk about things like truth and reconciliation commissions yeah. and honoring the victims also and letting them actually tell their story directly to the perpetrator which to some extent happens in a court of law but more often than not it's just kind of like packaged into these units that make it easy to prosecute and there isn't really actually an, and it's an, a way for like human interaction and emotions and like pain and suffering and stuff to be voiced and, and aired so yeah um, yeah I agree think that that would be an important maybe compliment to not not just thrown not throwing him in prison but also also doing so yeah i mean he has to be held to account there, there is such a thing as justice and like you know settling scores and balancing ledgers and stuff like that it's just about figuring out more humane ways of doing that and if he has affluenza he really needs a truth and reconciliation commission i suppose to make him see that other people have you know it, it i guess maybe this is my last point on this is um in, on Wall Street, there's this concept of fuck you money. And the basic idea is you have enough money that you can call up anyone in the world and say fuck you and hang up the phone and there will be no consequences. But it always struck me as... It sounds like a Kanye West thing. I got that fuck you money. Well, Don't you feel like you... It, well, and it's also just like a really childish thing, right? Like, that's how children behave because at a certain point, children don't actually have... Like, they like biologically do not have compassion because they don't understand that when you poke someone else, they feel the same thing when as when you poke the child. And after a certain age, they get that. Uh -huh. And so it's almost like this concept of affluenza or, like, people on Wall Street with fuck you money are still living as, like, two-year-olds. reverting to... Yeah, that don't understand that other people have feelings. And so it's actually, like, almost like a developmental disorder. Yep. Extreme wealth, wealth, wealth is a, a developmental, developmental disorder. disorder. Let's cure them of it by dispossessing them of some of that wealth. <laughs> My wealth comes to me.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Wall Street has a secret society referred to as Kappa Beta Phi. And recently, Kevin Roos, who is a reporter with New York Times Magazine, wanted to... I'm sorry... Kevin Roos, who is a reporter with New York Magazine, uh, decided to infiltrate them and figure out what they do during their annual dinner. Well, he found that the top 1% is just as despicable as you can imagine. In fact, they got together and they made fun of the fact that they totally destroyed our economy. They got made fun of the fact that they got a bailout from the government and U.S. taxpayers, and they dressed up in dresses and wigs. Now, just to show you a few pictures, it's a little bit like a fraternity where... You don't necessarily get hazed, but they kind of roast each other a little bit. They're wearing funny clothing. They're making cracking jokes at one another's expense. But when they crack jokes, they also make sure to make fun of the American people and people who are supposed to be regulating them at the same time. Yeah. So when they dress up as women, it's fairly harmless. They, you know, it, yeah, it reminds you of like an immature thing yeah. that a frat would do, etc. The and then they've got the sexist jokes, the homophobic jokes. I, I'm I'm not overly surprised by any of that. It's the part where they kind of rub it in on the American people and how they took their money. That's the part that rubs you raw. Absolutely. So uh, he writes the following. This is Kevin Roos from New York Magazine. He says, Warren Stevens, an investment banking CEO, took the stage in a Confederate flag hat and sang a song about the financial crisis set to the tune of Dixie. In Wall Street land, we'll take your stand, said Morgan and Goldman. Uh, but first, we better get some loans. So quick, get the Fed, man. Oh, very clever, very funny. See, so it's not like they don't know it. They know it. Like, haha, we screwed everything up. It doesn't matter. We got our boys at the Fed, and they're just going to give us trillions of dollars anyway. Quick, get the Fed, man. <laughs> we took all your money. Now we're celebrating at the St. Regis. They have a saying. What happens at the St. Regis stays at the St. Regis. Yeah. At some point, uh, Paul Quelly, uh, he's a private equity executive uh, with Welsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe, started making jokes with uh, Ted Virtue. Uh, he is, or Virtue, he is another private equity uh, bigwig. Uh, and they started making fun of Hillary Clinton. We have a video for that. Uh, let's take a quick look and then we'll discuss. Ted, how are you tonight? I know you're applying for membership at Kappa. And I'm very nervous, Paul. <laughs> you should be. Look at your belly. Um, or is it that time? Um, what we'd like to do, Ted, is we want to see if you're worthy. And it, Wilbur Ross, the Grand Swipe, has asked me to ask you a few questions. Okay, I'm ready. Well, Ted, the first question, this is very easy. Ted, what's the biggest difference between Hillary Clinton and a catfish? Hillary Clinton and a catfish. I think one's feared in the water and one's feared on land. Oh, no way. Nope, 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 uh, no. One has whiskers and stinks, and the other is a fish. <laughs> What's in common? What do these two people have in common, Ted? Stevie Cohen. Governor John Corzine. Steve Cohen and John Corzine. 
I'd say they're big titans on Wall Street. No, no, they're future cellmates. <laughs> What's the biggest difference between Barney Frank and a Fenway Frank? Barney Frank and a Fenway Frank. I have no idea, Paul. Oh, Teddy, Barney Frank comes in different size buns. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Oh, they're a clever bunch over there. They're very, very clever. And so, I mean, it's amazing to me that they're so vicious toward Hillary, especially considering the fact that Hillary helps them out tremendously. She's a corporatist herself. But as Jenk mentioned in the production meeting today, it's still not enough. They want yeah, more. You know that Goldman Sachs paid uh, Hillary Clinton $400,000 for a couple of speeches? That's not for her speeches. They're not wowed by, oh, wow, look, did you hear what she said? Oh, that's worth $400,000. No, they paid her as an unofficial bribe if, right. in case she becomes president. And you know what she told them in that speech? She said, don't worry, you're going to get your money's worth, basically, because she told them the criticism that you bankers get is unfair. Meanwhile, look at what they're saying about her behind her back. Exactly. Now, um, as part of this annual dinner, they have younger members of Wall Street come in, and it's almost as if they get sworn in. They get involved in the secret society, and it's like a rite of passage, right? And they, they refer to these young people as uh, neophytes. And here's what uh, Kevin Rue says he experienced with them. The neophytes, who had changed from their drag outfits into Mormon missionary costumes, broke into their musical finale, a parody version of I Believe, the hit ballad from the Book of Mormon, with customized lyrics like, I believe that God has a plan for all of us. I believe my plan involves a seven-figure bonus. Amused, I pulled out my phone and began recording the proceedings on video. Wrong move. Uh, at that point, he got discovered. Okay, so... Before we get to that, I do want to say one thing about that. You know how the right wing and these guys who uh, financially back the right wing uh, pretend that they're all about God and all this stuff? And if you are, if you're a right winger who actually believes in God and it's not a punchline to you, well, the guys backing your Republican Party, and oftentimes Democrats as well, but these guys give a lot more money to the Republican Party, they're laughing at you behind your back. They're not just laughing at Hillary Clinton. You want to laugh at that joke? You want to laugh at the Barney Frank joke? They're laughing at you. They're like, oh, what has God got for me? Better be a seven-figure bonus! <laughs> God! Gives a damn about God. I already bribed everybody. I'm going to get whatever I need, and if I don't get it, I'm going to go to the Fed. I got a guy there, right? That's what they think about you. I know, it's disgusting. So at that point, he gets discovered. And that's when uh, someone who was sitting at, the, at his table discovered that he was recording. He's like, who the hell are you? And at that point, he has to admit that he's a reporter with the New York Times. And all of a sudden, panic sets in. And a bunch of big wigs from Wall Street approach him and they start trying to do damage control. One person who approached him was Alexandra Liebenthal. She's a bond investor. And she basically said the following to him. Yeah, the people in this group could be very helpful if you could just keep their privacy in mind. Oh, I love that quote. Because that's basically saying, hey, let us bribe you like we bribe everybody else, okay? Yeah. Okay, you snuck in here, you got it, you got some pictures, you got the tape, etc. But it's all right, we could be very helpful in the future. I mean, it sounds like a line out of House of Cards. It's amazing. Now, Kevin Roos was not about to compromise his principles, and I absolutely love him for it. He writes the following, I wasn't going to be bribed off my story, but I understood their panic. Here, after all, was a group that included many of the executives whose firms had collectively wrecked the global economy in 2008 and 2009. And they were laughing off the entire disaster in private as if it were a long-forgotten lark. And um, 
One of the songs that they sang, and that's, again, the thing that gets under my skin here, was a parody of ABBA's Dancing Queen, and it was called Bailout King. They are the bailout kings, right? So they know, they know. They know they got bailed out. They know they got bailed out by you, and then they laugh at you behind your back, and then the guy who is the head of these proceedings is Wilbur Ross. He's the guy that he kept writing about who was uh, the leader of this group at the time when Kevin Roos had infiltrated it, etc. Later, in fact, this year, Wilbur Ra Ross uh, went on to say the 1% is being picked on for political reasons. Definitely. Yeah, these poor, poor, wealthy people that totally destroyed the economy and then turn around and laugh at the American people and the politicians that look out for them. The politicians that they bought. Yeah, they know they're the bailout kings. They know you bailed them out. And once they, if somebody catches them saying it, they're willing to bribe them so that that doesn't get out. And then they turn around and say, oh, poor us. You're picking on us for political reasons. And so understand this, this is really important. It's never about bashing rich people. There's, I'm sure even in that group, of course, there are plenty of people who earned it and who, you know, you know, look, there is value in finance, obviously, right? Making the right investments is, is helps the free market get to the, so she, now there's some private equity that doesn't do that at all, that destroys value. But the main thing we're concerned about is rigging the rules so that you don't have free markets and that this isn't helping anybody except those guys in that room. And the way you rig the rules is you get rid of regulations, you get rid of uh, taxes so that you pay lower tax than everybody else. That's what they've done. We're against the unfair rules. But here by seeing the bailout king and all the other things that, that Kevin Roos explains, they know they're rigging the rules. They know it. That's why when they're caught, they get in a panic and they're like, who else do we need to bribe to make sure you don't tell the American people what we're up to? It's not that we're picking on you for political reasons. It's that you've been picking on all of us for political reasons so that you could get richer. If you just got rich in the fair market, whether it's Bill Gates, it's Oprah, or some of the finance guys that earned it the right way, we don't have a problem with that. We have a problem when you rig the rules, you take our money, and then you laugh at us over it. Come relax till we're free from this hell which we You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Citizens United, take two. Rich white men rule this country. You can deny it or point to anomalies, but by and large, rich, white, and male is the trifecta, a winning lottery ticket to a life of ease and power. And as minorities become the majority, women and the LGBT community chip away at the millennia-long privilege 
and equality gets chiseled into our federal and state constitutions, the Koch brothers and their ilk are doubling down on their efforts to rig the system. Citizens United was awful enough. We saw the first glimpse of what nearly unlimited campaign donations from individual and corporate donors looked like in 2012, as Sheldon Adelson kept Newt Gingrich afloat and Foster Freeze continually breathed new life into Rick Santorum's pitiful presidential bid. Even if you were appalled by the blatant purchasing of candidates during the last election cycle, you haven't seen anything yet. McCutcheon v. Federal Election Commission currently before the Supreme Court could knock down the last of Buckley v. Vallejo's campaign contribution limits by no longer considering aggregate donations. No more tally of the lump sum a person or corporation injects into a race. As the governmental accountability nonprofit Common Cause explains on their website, if the court sides with the plaintiff in McCutcheon v. FEC and overturns aggregate contribution limits, a single individual could spend as much as $3.6 million on a single election, enough to buy the attention of the president and every single member of Congress. This would mean the Koch brothers together could dump $7.2 million into any election. Not into any election cycle, any election. The potential damage is practically unfathomable. Common Cause isn't waiting for the Supreme Court decision to come down. They have put together a set of actions to support removing money from politics as well as restoring the Voting Rights Act. Visit the Take Action tab at commoncause.org to contact your representatives about restoring the Voting Rights Act, sign the petition stating that money is not speech, and demand that the Securities and Exchange Commission require publicly held companies to disclose their spending to shareholders. We cannot always be reactionary, waiting for a destructive, pro-corporate, pro-wealth Supreme Court decision to devastate our democracy. With Citizens United already in place, we must prepare for the possibility that McCutcheon will hand another victory to the top one-half of 1%. Speak up, get involved, and join the movement to push ahead, not just push back. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? I want you to, for a moment, think about playing a game of Monopoly, except in this game, that combination of skill, talent, and luck that help earn you success in games as in life has been rendered irrelevant because this game's been rigged, and you've got the upper hand. You've got more money, more opportunities to move around the board, and more access to resources. And as you think about that experience, I want you to ask yourself, how might that experience of being a privileged player in a rigged game change the way that you think about yourself and regard that other player? So we ran a study on the UC Berkeley campus to look at exactly that question. We brought in more than 100 pairs of strangers into the lab and with the flip of a coin randomly assigned one of the two to be a rich player in a rigged game. They got two times as much money when they passed go, they collected twice the salary, and they got to roll both dice instead of one, so they got to move around the board a lot more. <laughs> and over the course of 15 minutes, we watched through hidden cameras what happened. And what I want to do today for the first time is show you a little bit of what we saw. 
You're going to have to pardon the sound quality in some cases because, again, these were hidden cameras. So we've provided subtitles. How many 500s did you have? Just one. Are you serious? Yeah. I have three. <laughs> I don't know why they gave me so much. Okay, so it was quickly apparent to players that something was up. One person clearly has a lot more money than the other person. And yet, as the game unfolded, we saw very notable differences and dramatic differences begin to emerge between the two players. The rich player started to move around the board louder, literally smacking the board with their piece as he went around. We were more likely to see signs of dominance and nonverbal signs of display, uh, displays of power and celebration among the rich players. All right, we had a bowl of pretzels positioned off to the side. It's on the bottom right corner there. That, that allowed us to watch participants' consumatory behavior. So we're just tracking how many pretzels participants eat. Are those pretzels a trick? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so no surprises. People are on to us. They wonder what that bowl of pretzels is doing there in the first place. One even asks, like you just saw, is that bowl of pretzels there as a trick? And yet... Despite that, the power of the situation seems to inevitably dominate, and those rich players start to eat more pretzels. And as the game went on, one of the really interesting and dramatic patterns that we observed begin to emerge was that the rich players actually started to become ruder for the other person. Less and less sensitive to the plight of those poor, poor players and more and more demonstrative of their material success. More likely to showcase how well they're doing. I don't buy it. I mean, I have so much money. I have so much money to take me for I'm going to buy out this whole board. You're going to run out of money soon. You're pretty much untouchable at this point. Okay. And here's what I think was really, really interesting. Is that at the end of the 15 minutes, we asked the players to talk about their experience during the game. And when the rich players talked about why they'd inevitably won in this rigged game of Monopoly... They talked about what they'd done to buy those different properties and earn their success in the game. And they became far less attuned to all those different features of the situation, including that flip of a coin that had randomly gotten them into that privileged position in the first place. And that's a really, really incredible insight into how the mind makes sense of advantage. Now, this game of Monopoly can be used as a metaphor for understanding society and its hierarchical structure, wherein some people have a lot of wealth and a lot of status, and a lot of people don't. They have a lot less wealth, and a lot less status, and a lot less access to valued resources. And what my colleagues and I, for the last seven years, have been doing is studying the effects of these kinds of hierarchies. What we've been finding across dozens of studies and thousands of participants across this country is that as a person's levels of wealth increase, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down. 
and their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and their ideology of self-interest increases. In surveys, we found that it's actually wealthier individuals who are more likely to moralize greed being good and that the pursuit of self-interest is favorable and moral. Now, what I want to do today is talk about some of the implications of this ideology of self-interest, talk about why we should care about those implications and end with what might be done. Some of the first studies that we ran in this area looked at helping behavior, something social psychologists call pro-social behavior. And we were really interested in who's more likely to offer help to another person, someone who's rich or someone who's poor. In one of the studies, we bring in rich and poor members of the community into the lab and give each of them the equivalent of $10. We told the participants that they could keep these $10 for themselves or they could share a portion of it, if they wanted to, with a stranger who's totally anonymous. They'll never meet that stranger and the stranger will never meet them. And we just monitor how much people give. Individuals who made twenty-five, sometimes under $15,000 a year gave 44% more of their money to this stranger than did individuals making $150,000, $200,000 a year. We've had people play games to see who's more or less likely to cheat to increase their chances of winning a prize. In one of the games, we actually rigged a computer so that die rolls over a certain score were impossible. You couldn't get above 12 in this game. And yet, the richer you were, the more likely you were to cheat in this game to earn credits toward a $50 cash prize, sometimes by three to four times as much. We ran another study where we looked at whether people would be inclined to take candy from a jar of candy that we explicitly identified as being reserved for children, <laughs> participating, I'm not kidding, I know it sounds like I'm making a joke, we explicitly told participants, this jar of candy is for children participating in a developmental lab nearby. They're in studies, this is for them, and we just monitored how much candy participants took. Participants who felt rich took two times as much candy as participants who felt poor. We've even studied cars, not just any cars, but whether drivers of different kinds of cars are more or less inclined to break the law. In one of these studies, we looked at whether drivers would stop for a pedestrian that we had posed waiting across at a crosswalk. Now, in California, as you all know, because I'm sure we all do this, it's the law to stop for a pedestrian who's waiting across. So here's an example of how we did it. That's our Confederate off to the left posing as a pedestrian. He approaches as the red truck successfully stops. In typical California fashion, it's, it's overtaken by the bus who almost runs our pedestrian <laughs> over. Now, here's an example of a more expensive car, a Prius driving through and a BMW doing the same. So we did this for hundreds of vehicles on several days, just tracking who stops and who doesn't. What we found was that as the expensiveness of a car increased, <laughs> the driver's tendencies to break the law increased as well. None of the cars, none of the cars in our least expensive car category broke the law. Close to 50% of the cars in our most expensive vehicle category 
broke the law. We've run other studies finding that wealthier individuals are more likely to lie in negotiations, to endorse unethical behavior at work, like stealing cash from the cash register, taking bribes, lying to customers. Now, I don't mean to suggest that it's only wealthy people who show these patterns of behavior. Not at all. In fact, I think that we all, in our day-to-day, minute-by-minute lives, struggle with these competing motivations of when or if to put our own interests above the interests of other people. And that's understandable because the American dream is an idea in which we all have an equal opportunity to succeed and prosper as long as we apply ourselves and work hard. And a piece of that means that sometimes you need to put your own interests above the interests and well-being of other people around you. But what we're finding is that the wealthier you are, the more likely you are to pursue a vision of personal success, of achievement and accomplishment to the detriment of others around you. Here I've plotted for you the mean household income received by each fifth and top 5% of the population over the last 20 years. In 1993, the differences between the different quintiles of the population in terms of income are fairly egregious. It's not difficult to discern that there are differences. But over the last 20 years, that significant difference has become a grand canyon of sorts between those at the top and everyone else. In fact, the top 20% of our population own close to 90% of the total wealth in this country. We're at unprecedented levels of economic inequality. What that means is that wealth is not only becoming increasingly concentrated in the hands of a select group of individuals, but the American dream is becoming increasingly unattainable for an increasing majority of us. And if it's the case, as we've been finding that the wealthier you are, the more entitled you feel to that wealth, and the more likely you are to prioritize your own interests above the interests of other people and be willing to do things to serve that self-interest, well, then there's no reason to think that those patterns will change. In fact, there's every reason to think that they'll only get worse. And that's what it would look like if things just stayed the same at the same linear rate over the next 20 years. Now, inequality, economic inequality, is something we should all be concerned about, not just because of those at the bottom of the social hierarchy, but because individuals in groups with lots of economic inequality do worse. Not just the people at the bottom, everyone. There's a lot of really compelling research coming out from top labs all over the world showcasing the range of things that are undermined as economic inequality gets worse. Social mobility, things we really care about, physical health, social trust, all go down as inequality goes up. Similarly, negative things in social collectives and societies. Things like obesity and violence, imprisonment and punishment are exacerbated as economic inequality increases. Again, these are outcomes not just experienced by a few, but that resound across all strata of society. Even people at the top experience these outcomes. So, what do we do? This cascade of self-perpetuating, pernicious, negative effects could seem like something that's spun out of control. And there's nothing we can do about it. Certainly nothing we as individuals could do. But, in fact, 
we've been finding in our own laboratory research that small, small psychological interventions, small changes to people's values, small nudges in certain directions can restore levels of egalitarianism and empathy. For instance, reminding people of the benefits of cooperation or the advantages of community cause wealthier individuals to be just as egalitarian as poor people. In one study, we had people watch a brief video, just 46 seconds long, about childhood poverty that served as a reminder of the needs of others in the world around them. And after watching that, we looked at how willing people were to offer up their own time to a stranger presented to them in the lab who was in distress. After watching this video, an hour later, rich people became just as generous of their own time to help out this other person, a stranger, as someone who's poor, suggesting that these differences are not innate or categorical, but are so malleable to slight changes in people's values and little nudges of compassion and bumps of empathy. And beyond the walls of our lab, we're even beginning to see signs of change in society. Bill Gates, one of our nation's wealthiest individuals in his Harvard commencement speech, talked about the problem facing society of inequality as being the most daunting challenge and talked about what must be done to combat it, saying, humanity's greatest advances are not in its discoveries, but in how those discoveries are applied to reduce inequity. And there's the giving pledge, in which more than a hundred of our nation's wealthiest individuals are pledging half of their fortunes to charity. And there's the emergence of dozens of grassroots movements, like We Are the One Percent, the Resource Generation, or Wealth for Common Good, in which the most privileged members of the population, members of the 1% and elsewhere, people who are wealthy, are using their own economic resources, adults and youth alike, that's what's most striking to me, leveraging their own privilege, their own economic resources to combat inequality by advocating for social policies, changes in social values, and changes in people's behavior that work against their own economic interests, but that may ultimately restore the American dream. Isaac Krim, DC, and I love your podcast, and I generally respect your guests, but the people that you clipped on your Ukraine episode really dropped the ball uh, on the recent turmoil in Ukraine. Uh, I'm from New Jersey, but I also grew up in Ukraine. My family lived there for many years, uh, and we still have a flat a few blocks from my down uh where the protests occurred, and uh, my dad's in Ukraine right now. Uh, so I want to explain to your listeners, and that's that all of my friends and family in Ukraine, from the most right-wing conservative uh, to the most left-wing, uh, agree on this one thing, and that's that Viktor Yanukovych has always been a thug. I'm 
some of your guest clips in the episode um, took this crazy position that uh, defending uh, Viktor Yanukovych as a, some sort of democratic and legitimate leader of Ukraine. And I'm sorry, but they really need to do their research uh, about Ukrainian political corruption over the past decade before they dare to claim that uh, Viktor Yanukovych was some sort of victim here. From your episode's uh, guest quotes, I got the general idea that if the United States supports Ukraine, then Ukraine must be terrible because World War III. Uh, is it hypocritical for American officials to condemn Russia for in you invading Ukraine? Yes, of course it is. I'm a generally a fan of Noam Chomsky's analysis of American hypocrisy when it comes to democracy and military intervention, and I don't want any Western military intervention anywhere near Crimea, but I think too many on the left refuse to accept the truly repulsive nature of Vladimir Putin's actions when it comes to Ukraine. And I think the hawks on the right and the left are saber-rattling against Putin, and it's ridiculous. But the truth is that the Ukrainian people have had a far more dynamic and lively democracy in the past 10 years than we have had here in America. And no, I'm not kidding. Ukrainians have risen up and demanded control over their own economy and political structure. And yes, they've been crushed by state and private power, but the people have consistently stood up for freedom of speech, assembly, and democratic values while we here in America are sitting on our asses. So Russia despises this drive for independence and self-determination and seeks control over the Ukrainian state. And this is a pattern that goes back hundreds of years and I don't have time to go into it. But the point is that Ukrainians love America. They're good people and they are in love with democracy. And uh, military option <laughs> action is obviously not an option. And anybody who says otherwise is insane. But I really think we need to listen to the Ukrainian people, and they're putting progressive values into action. And as progressives, I think we should applaud them for it, and I think we should seek out more media outlets that accurately per portray the situation in Ukraine. So thanks, Jay, and uh, peace, bro. Hey, Jay. Um, my name is Rosa Goodman. I'm living in Denver, Colorado just been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now and I remember you asking something about response to Joss Whedon's uh, feminist speech and I just wanted to give my two cents on that or what I got from his speech and that was that he was saying to for me the thing I really got out of it was that he was saying that feminists is not a good label, not because you shouldn't be feminist, but that because everybody should already be feminist. That if you're not feminist, then there's something, there's something wrong with that. Because you should believe that women are equal. I mean, that should just be a fact that everyone believes. So there shouldn't need to be a label that says that. That should just be the way it is. So we need a label for the people that don't get that, that don't believe that. So that is what genderist was for. Genderist was the label for people that don't believe that women are equal. So that, you know, I, I really like that. I think that, yeah, I shouldn't have to say I'm a feminist. Everybody should be a feminist. I should get to say, wow, you don't believe that women are equal? Well, that is seriously not okay. That makes you a genderist. So, 
Yeah, that's just my uh, my thoughts on what he said. I mean, that's what I got out of it. I thought that was what he was trying to say. Thanks for your podcast, and I think it's great, and I will keep on listening. Hi, Jay. This is Maureen calling from south of Boston, listening to your show about Ukraine brought up terrible memories for me. I'm one of the first of the boomers. My parents were married before the war in the Pacific was over. So I believe that my generation got the worst of the Cold War fight. We had movies and television shows about nuclear winter. I believe it was on Life magazine too. What would happen if one or the other countries used the bomb? Incidentally, at that time, when no one else thought of it, there was someone who said that the Third World War would start by Pakistan or India or a country in that area using the bomb against its neighbor. Be that as it may. I lived with drills to get me under the desk in case the atom bomb came down while I was in school. I remember the Bay of Pigs sitting tensely and ha they had continually had us take these practices to get out of the way. But the one thing that I haven't heard anything about which is very important, is that communism, the big idea against it was that it was against theology. No God was allowed. God was only something created to put the masses in their place or something of that sort. Now, and that's why we all had to fight against Russia was because they were against God. Now we've got this dictator in there who is capitalist and pro-God or pro-his idea of religion, whatever, which would be fine with the forces that were so upset about the religion not being there. So it's important to remember that Putin is against everything that we hated Russia for, that we were ready to throw the world into nuclear winter. We had movies like On the Beach, and Planet of the Apes, and TV shows, and Twilight Zones, and it's terribly frightening that you're bringing it all up again. It's not your fault, certainly. It's just world events coming up again, and some idiots considering bombs and such. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just to wrap up today, I want to tell you this, just a little story that just in the last week or so, a couple of friends have gotten in touch asking, you know, is everything okay? Anything changed with you? You've, you've been sounding sort of more strident on the show recently, maybe a little angry, you know, is, is everything all right? And my response to both was, you know, you're probably not 
imagining that. Like, I've been in sort of a shit mood for for a little while, and I'm quite sure that's coming through in the show. And both of them actually responded the same way, saying, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry to hear that, but I, I've really been loving the, the anger that's coming through in the show. So, nice work. You know, so for today, it, it just so happens that I didn't get any voicemails that inspired me to rip someone's head off. Uh, but what I will say is that today's episode is definitely a direct result of my mood recently. A day or two ago, when I got in touch with uh, Katie Klebusik, who does all the, you know, the activism and, and the social media for the show and, and told her what I wanted the episode to be about, I said, well, you know, I really want to do one that's like just fuck the rich, you know? And so if you can find any activism that's like, burning rich at the stake, uh, that sort of thing. Let's, let's aim for that. Unfortunately, all she could come up with was, you know, mitigating the results of money and politics and whatnot. But, you know, you, you do the best with what's available. Uh, so, and b- before you start to worry, at least half of my bad mood is just that I'm ready for winter to be over. So give me six weeks and we'll be all set again. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from best of the left.com and it's a crying shame how we get so trained